0: Hello, and welcome to the latest Clearbridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA investment strategist at Clearbridge Investments. Clearbridge is a global equity manager with $177 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Happy New Year to all of our podcast listeners. We have put an unprecedented 2020 in the rear of your mirror. And we're excited to be discussing a return to normalcy with greater confidence than at any point since COVID-19 pandemic swept across the globe last winter. I'll know we're back to normal when we are finally record a show from our physical podcast booth in Midtown Manhattan. But until then, we'll continue to rock and roll from our home offices. Unlike the past several years, we're now talking in positive terms about value stocks as emergency use authorization of two COVID vaccines, The resolution of the U.S. elections and a long-awaited $900 billion follow-up stimulus bill have boosted companies tied to the reopening of the U.S. economy. Will the current value rally be just another head fake, or does the broadening of market leadership bode well for an extended period of value leadership? To help answer these questions, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast booth, for the first time, Farha Mustafa, Clearbridge's head of quantitative research and the author of two fascinating white papers on active and passive crowding effects in equity markets. And joining Farhan is podcast veteran Sam Peters, portfolio manager for the Clearbridge Value Equity and All Cap Value Strategies, who's making his first appearance here to the virtual booth. Farhan and Sam are checking in from the Baltimore area while I'm coming to you from my usual perch here in northern New Jersey. We'll take a deep dive into the value growth debate in today's podcast ingredients for a sustained value run. Farhan, Sam, thank you for joining me here in the virtual podcast booth.
1: Looking forward to it. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Jeff.
0: And I couldn't think of a better team and a better podcast topic to start the year because I know that the whole growth value debate is the number one question on everybody's mind. That and, of course, where GameStop's stock is going to be headed over the next 30 seconds. <laughs> but there is a bit of a d- disbelief out there that we can see an extended value run because it has paid to fade the trend over the past 12 years. But value has taken the baton quite aggressively here since October, signaling that we may be on the cusp of a paradigm shift, given the very different setup that we see with the U.S. economy, especially compared to the last cycle. But before we dive into this debate head first. I want to help clarify to the audience, what exactly is value? And I know, Farhan, that you've done quite a bit of research on the topic. So is is value just the value indices? Is it simply low valuation stocks? Or is there a lot more to the story?
2: Thanks, Jeff. So I think that's a very important question. Um, and uh, there are several good answers. And I want to just talk about them briefly and then share what we want to use for the purposes of our audience. So, the academic definition of value uses the price to book ratio, been there for a good 40, 50 years. And there's a lot of active debate about uh, whether that definition is useful anymore or has it been arbitraged away. Anytime something is arbitraged away, multiple variations come up. There are ways of adjusting that, there are ways of bringing in other definitions of value EV to EBITDA, free cash flow yield, price to earnings. And many definitions of value would put a combination of these together. These are all completely legitimate, and they all provide a perspective along the spectrum of this is the worst cycle for value uh, punctuated since 2009, punctuated with a 2016. So all that is, is great. For the purposes of our discussion, we are at the moment using Publicly traded indexes. We will simply talk about the Russell Three Thousand Growth Index and the Russell Three Thousand Value Index. Again, these are thoughtful choices that you know when we want to talk about this. But when we talk about this directionally, then any all of these different measures are going to give you directionally comparable analyses. So what the growth and value index is showing us right now is that the spread, the difference between the performance of the growth and value is as broad, as wide as it has been since the dot-com bubble. It is astounding. There is a good 40% difference. 40%. Wow. 40%. We have come back off of this a little bit since about uh, September, but at the peak of this cycle, we got to close to 40% performance differential between the two over a multi-year period. So I want to sort of put that as my lead off into this. Sam, do you have anything to add to that?
1: That's all right. And the one thing I'd add, Jeff, and it's important, is we we often use in our process an economic definition of value. And it's just basically we're thinking about business value versus price and price and value convergence. And business value is just, broadly speaking, it's a little theoretical, but discounted some of the future cash flows and the ability of a company to, you know, invest at in attractive returns well above the cost of capital. So, again, that's our process. And then the world, though, and how people think about it in these cycles, to Farhan's point, it's these accounting valuation multiples, price earnings, price book, and then factors where you just slice the world into buckets. You know, the cheap bucket, the expensive bucket, and that those buckets are sort of the tail wagging the dog. But at the end of the day, over time, the The weighing machine, as Ben Graham and Warren Buffett used to talk about, that's really that economic definition of value, business value versus price. But Farhan's exactly right. As we talk about it today, it'll be at that index level just to
0: simplify things. Farhan, you touched on the dispersion between growth and value, 40% over a multi-year period. Is this greater than what we saw during the dot-com bubble? Is it comparable? I mean, where do we fall historically from, from this outperformance?
2: So in the 1990, 2000, a couple of times in that period, this this performance dispersion got as wide as 60%. And uh, that was a very dramatic up and a very dramatic down. This current cycle, interestingly, Jeff, has been a less dramatic but longer drag. So the other way of saying this is the value managers have been in feeling the pain of this trade for a while. The other thing that happened, that has happened during the cycle is, at different periods, growth became very tightly correlated with a couple of other factors, momentum, quality. So, so this period has been, I'm going to reframe this just a tiny little bit as, it's been value against others. Sometimes that's a combination yeah. of growth, sometimes that's growth itself. But the idea of the stocks that derive a lot of their excess returns from the performance of the business in terms of their value characteristics has just been in, in having a difficult time um, for almost a decade, punctuated briefly with 2016, and then the last past few months now.
0: Sam, anything to add? Yeah, I mean… Fraun
1: hit on it. You know, really mean reversions looked pretty dead over the last uh, <laughs> over the last 10 years, and and value had been underperforming. And then from sort of the last three years, 2018, it kind of did a cliff dive. So it, it accelerated the, the bad way. And again, at that index level we're using, um, if you look at the Russell 1000 value versus Russell 1000 growth, last year was the worst relative year for value on record. It underperformed by 36%.
0: Which is surprising. I mean, you, you wouldn't think that coming off of a recessionary trough, right?
1: Well, you're correct. But it's always noisy, as you well know, more than anybody, Jeff. And, and you did hit the 100 percentile. So you were bouncing off a, a new mat, a new dungeon, if you will, to come out of. So you know, on many measures, and you looked at it, it really was the cheapest you'd gotten. And it was really that relative gap. It's not, you know, during 2000, there was this absolute gap that was bigger, but this time it was that relative gap between growth and value on most measures was the most dramatic ever. So um, in this digital world of winners and losers, we all knew who the losers were, and it was clearly, uh, clearly the, however you defined it, you know, value, broadly speaking.
0: Well, it does seem like the the losers are becoming winners here over the last, call it four or five months. You've seen a a pretty substantial rotation into the the value complex, really starting in October, uh, when you started to sniff out a potential blue wave with higher stimulus. Obviously, Pfizer's efficacy data uh, supercharged that rotation. And I, I think one of the key questions that probably everybody listening has is, is this rotation going to be short-lived, all similar to what we saw in 2009, in 2013, 2017? Or are we going back to a more sustainable rally, which you've historically seen in, in previous economic cycles? I'm going to throw out a jump ball there and see if uh, either of you want to weigh in on that.
1: Yeah, I'll start. You know, I, I think it's different. And First of all, Q4 was really, last year, to your earlier question, Jeff, q4 was the first time value at the index level again beat growth pretty handily as you said and it it's still it's you know it's a lift it's a life it's a heartbeat that we haven't seen in a while if you will and the big question of the durability you're asking it's your world Jeff it's it's macro questions of how this evolves but at the very least there's a tactical opportunity for value that I think we're about halfway through and this is I think most people accept this um, we're about halfway through as we get more normal activity, faster nominal growth these sort of things that rising tide that higher temperature if you will of nominal growth that'll lift a lot of boats and we're seeing that and so the market was broadening out value came out of the gates very strong year to date was well ahead of growth now that that fight growth landed a punch again and 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 growth actually went ahead of value at the index level again briefly but it's back and forth and we just haven't seen that back and forth so at a very simple level that relative just value falling away from growth, that has stopped for now. And and like I said, I think we're halfway through this tactical. And then there's a bigger question, which I know we'll get into, of the strategic. And the strategic opportunity for value, will the next market cycle, and I think we're in a new market cycle, will it be value or not? And that's to be determined. That'll depend on higher rates, inflation, and also, quite frankly, belief. Will there be enough belief Will there be enough value outperformance to get a feedback loop in behavior that the narrative changes? And that's to be determined. And I'm sure we'll get into the more, more of how that could evolve strategically uh, a little later in the podcast.
0: Farhan, any thoughts on the, you know, the length of uh, or the sustainability of this value rotation that we're seeing?
1: So, no real
2: conviction at the moment on what's in front of us. But as a student of history, one thing we can look back and we can see that uh, past value rallies tend to be longer, more sustaining, and they compound much greater compared to growth or momentum is one that I have also studied very closely, which tend to be very sharp one way or the other and short-lived. So I think that one of the challenges that we have to observe is, due to a lot of dynamics in the markets the rise of passive, the ETF trade, the retail trade, um, there is a discussion whether the time horizon has shrunk. Is the activity of two years happening in two months, as we felt like in the March to April, May timeframe last year? So taking that, but still the historical analysis would suggest that as value kicks in, and it does need to have the fundamental support, the macro backdrop that allows the fundamental support to come through, they tend to have legs. They tend to last for a long period of time. It is worth it to be a value investor for the pain during the bad times because the gain comes over a good period of time and persists and allows you to compound your excess returns.
0: Yeah, I I think you make a a valid point there, Farhan. I mean, I think given the macroeconomic backdrop and the change that we've seen in the Fed response function, I I think we could be sowing the seeds for maybe a more sustainable, durable value rotation. You know, if you look at consumers, they are arguably in the best shape they've been in since 1945 coming out of World War II with, you know, obviously rationing and forced savings. Consumers over the last year have $1.4 trillion in excess savings compared to where we were pre-pandemic that doesn't include the december stimulus checks that just went out doesn't include biden's stimulus package and if you include those we're very likely looking at 2 trillion dollars worth of dry powder basically sitting there and it's not because you've accumulated this excess savings because of caution which was what we saw in the aftermath of the gfc but because of mobility restrictions and when you remo- remove that mobility restriction which is herd immunity in the virus My core view is that you're going to see revenge spending, deferred gratification. You're going to see a big boost of economic activity in the back half of the year, which is why I think, you know, expectations for GDP growth in 2021, I think it's going to be well above consensus expectations, probably closer to 6%. And that's likely going to bleed into 2022 and maybe even 2023. I mean, these are numbers that, you know, we just can't fathom because they're just so massive and out of his contest, historically speaking. But I, I think the other half of the equation here is the Fed's response function. Uh, the Fed is clearly fighting the last battle, which was that slow growth period that we had out of the GFC. They have, you know, clearly said that they are doing massive amounts of QE for the foreseeable future, 120 billion per month, which is one and a half times larger than any other QE program. They've moved to that inf- average inflation targeting regime which means that they're not going to start to raise rates until the unemployment rate hits pre-covid levels, which is 3.6% and uh, inflation hitting 2% and sustainably and that's really the key word which is sustainable inflation. And looking at their dot plots going out to the 2023, they do see it hitting, you know, that unemployment rate at 3.7%, but they only see inflation hitting 2% at the end of 2023. So from the Fed's perspective, they don't see themselves moving rates higher at least until 2024, at the earliest. And I think this is really underappreciated by investors right now, right? Every economic cycle, maybe except for COVID 19's recession, has the Fed's fingerprints all over it because when they think inflation's coming, they raise rates aggressively, they end up breaking something in the economy, they have to cut rates, a recession happens, and they restart the cycle. This time around, they're gonna keep the punch bowl out there a lot longer than what you've historically seen. And the Fed has finally recognized that raising rates too early is actually much more detrimental to the economy than raising rates too late. So, in my opinion, given how much dry powder is out there from a consumer perspective, the fact that there's not a lot of structural damage in the economy like you saw after the GFC and this change of the Fed's response function, I think these are really key ingredients to your point Sam that could make this more of a more less of a cyclical rotation into value but this has the ability to really be more of a structural move. I mean, Sam, do you, do you have any, any views on that?
1: No. I mean, I, I riffed off of your macro views in my letter. And, uh, <laughs> and I think people are underreacting to your very logical take on things. And the Fed wants to change the narrative. You know, Volcker had to change the narrative from inflation to deflation. This Fed wants to change the narrative from deflation to inflation. That's a game changer. And I just... That runway that you articulate and them keeping the punch bowl back, that gives us a long narrative for value to to have the tailwind, which they haven't had in a long time, and nothing begets winning like winning in prices, prices going higher. It changes the narrative, and people think about the world in narratives, and that's why they're rightly asking this question about growth and value. It's a narrative-based thing where you can get these reflexive feedback loops that change behavior. And the other big one I'd I'd add to this, we are one of the original longest dated ESG shops and the ESG world is not gonna be put back in a bottle, which I think is a great thing. At a societal level, we're gonna be attacking climate change and wealth disparity through fiscal spending globally. And depending on the estimates you look at, that's gonna amount cumulatively globally at the same time, synchronized fiscal behavior, if you will, in the trillions of dollars and that ESG spending we've had an ESG growth cycle in some ways that ESG spending is going to be asset intensive resource intensive labor intensive that's value you know that'll that'll add that'll take that monetary policy that could stay loose and that'll add a, a much bigger multiplier and then the final thing to your point jeff on your what i'm looking at i agree the fed could ruin the party they have that power however Banks are coming out of this, unlike the great financial crisis, in incredible shape. That is dry powder. And you and I talk about this all the time. If bank lending starts coming up, if we actually get monetary velocity, because the the Fed kept pumping all this liquidity in the system, it never ended up in people's pockets. It wasn't getting spent. Monetary velocity would go the other way and sort of sterilize that monetary response. That may not happen this time. And, And your own work has shown deposits. You know all that dry powder is on the sideline. It's in checking accounts. It's ready to get spent. It's ready to go on the cruise. It's ready to go on the trip. It's ready to be spent on a green investment policy. If that starts happening, that feedback, which is a key thing I'm looking for in 2021, I think it's going to get harder to put that nominal growth value genie nicely back in the bottle and pivot back to what it has had. Again, I'm biased as the value guy, but I just think <laughs> I think people are underreacting to the forecast that you've articulated.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I think you make a valid point there, Sam. You you finally have monetary and fiscal policy rowing in the same direction, right? Last Correct. cycle, there you, you had a very loose monetary policy around the world, but austerity was the name of the game for a big part of the cycle, which really hindered growth, and you know, We haven't seen them both rowing in the same direction really in, in a long period of time, and we don't know what the ramifications of that's certainly going to be. But to your point, banks are in a good position at this point. If they start lending, that could really juice uh, not only continue to make money growth be higher, even though it's at almost record levels at this point, but really start to spark velocity and, and really spark inflation. But you know, if you look at market participants, inflation break-evens have been moving higher here. They're right around the average that you've seen them trade at longer term at around 2%. So there's still a little bit of a disbelief that the Fed can actually generate inflation. And rightfully so. They've been trying to generate inflation for 20 years and unsuccessful at, at doing that. But what if we do get inflation? I mean, Barron, have you looked into the linkage between value underperformance or outperformance and the prevalence of inflation? Is, is there any correlation there?
2: There is. But one of the point I want to make on this is, when you're talking about studies like this, I think the context is really important. So yes, I can go much further back. But for the purposes of this question, I think it is most instructive to look at perhaps the last 10 years or so within the context you've laid out. And over this time period, there's been a fairly strong relationship between the value factor And expected inflation, the inflation break even. It's had about a 0.66 correlation positive, which translates to about a 0.44R squared. In uh, in social studies type of academic perspective, uh, it's really difficult to find such high correlation between uh, large macro events. Now, I will point out, it's important, I think, to note that there was a period since about, I would say, Covid until about November, December, when this relationship broke down visually, where in inflation expectations ramped quickly from about uh, the 0.5 mark up to about 1.7 very quickly. And value just sort of languished a little bit. But the latest move there, they, they look, they're moving again together. So again there's a little bit of tea leaves reading going on over here but I made that distinction for the real short term to sort of be you know frankly a little bit intellectually honest that there are times when it doesn't work but for the past 10 years or so the inflation expectations and the value factor have worked well together which also makes economics and fundamental sense so if the if the monetary velocity coming in from reopening, vaccination of the economic activity and the fiscal and monetary support, and a focus on something like infrastructure and consumer-led recovery, if they kick in or when they kick in, then the reflation trade should move in line with the performance of the value factor. So that's what I'm seeing over here.
0: And I guess maybe to close this out here, I think you know there's a lot of individuals out there that, you know, think it's a binary, you either own value or growth. Of values winning growth can't do well, and, and vice versa. Do you have any views on that? I mean, obviously we all feel very optimistic about values' chances of outperforming over the next six months, but does that mean that it has to come at the expense of, of growth?
2: So I think that's a great question. And I think that in the past, and Sam made this point earlier. Uh, that back in the dot-com bubble burst, there was an absolute performance differential between value and growth. But in the current cycle, this is uh, much more of a relative gain. And I want to emphasize that because there are some real um, fundamental drivers of what's been pushing growth stocks in this cycle. The digitization of our interactions is probably the most important one I would highlight, where there is real tailwinds to. Some of these uh, large addressable total market size of some of these digital companies, that is a different framework than just thinking about the role of top line growth only. So I would say that that uh, while the the idea of a uh, value uh, resurgence, sustained value resurgence makes a lot of sense to me, I think it will uh, this does not come at the expense of the growth performance of growth stocks going into the doldrums in this cycle? Um, I don't know if uh, Sam has uh, uh, what what his perspective on this is.
1: No, I mean, it's as we all know, and this goes back to my economic definition of value, it's a, if you really think about value the right way, i.e. business values versus price, growth is a huge factor. And the beauty of ClearBridge is we're a bottom-up, fundamentally driven shop. Our growth guys are gonna find cheap growth. They're gonna find, they're gonna find companies whose business economics justify a higher price, a higher, you know, the values above the price, just like we would. So the opportunity is broad. But what all I would say is, you know, changes in markets are always doubted at first. You know, this is these different market cycles. People cling to the last market cycle like crazy. And that doubt acts as a fuel for further gains as the narrative slowly shifts. And I have no doubt across Clearbridge like we'll we will intelligently shift with it. Um, and it's just you know I, I, I remind people all the time, a study we've done years back, every cycle's big winners. They always start off neglected, forgotten, at their cheapest you know, historically very cheap relative to history. That's where tech semiconductors, you name it. that's where they were fifteen years ago before the cycle. And now this, this last cycle was so narrow, it's left a lot of buckets, a lot of opportunities. If you go looking for them away from the index, away from where everybody's shining the lights right now, there's a lot of opportunity to find things that could qualify as the big winners because they're neglected, they're ignored, they're at historically low prices. And fortunately, that's just not a narrow value argument. That's a, that's a broader argument for being active and, and, and looking for it. So it's a good opportunity.
0: And I I would agree agree with both of you, like a lot of the growth companies out there, winner take all themes, you know, you mentioned digitization, obviously, which is going to be a huge driver, superior balance sheets, you know, a lot of industry consolidation, potentially that was been accelerated because of COVID-19. You know, a lot of these growth stocks of thing growing at 15, 20% high return on the equity. So these are really good companies. And I, I, you know, I think of it, not more of a growth value conversation, but cyclicals versus defensives. And given this huge ramp up of economic activity that we're going to see, consumer discretionary and IT are very much cyclical sectors that tend to do well with an accelerating economy. And in fact, my favorite sector is a a growth sector uh, with consumer discretionary, because I think that sector has a lot of opportunity with unleashing that $2 trillion of excess savings. Labor market's going to heal much quicker this time because almost 80% of the job losses were COVID-19 sensitive industries. When we take away that impediment, which is the virus, I think you're gonna see a much quicker labor market healing. So uh, again, I, I think it's gonna be a great environment for stock pickers that can be able to discern you know, who are the winners and losers going to be as we move to that post COVID world. I think that's all the time that we have here today. Great conversation, Sam Farhan. Thank you so much for, for sharing your valuable insights here with the listeners. I'd love to have you both back in the booth later this year to see how our prognostications worked out. But uh, thank you for, for joining.
1: Pleasure, Jeff. Thank you both very much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Anytime. It was fun.
2: Look forward to the next conversation.
0: And to everybody out there, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the debate as much as we've liked having it. And uh, we hope you'll continue to join us throughout 2021 and welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at Thank you. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of January 29th, 2021, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.